Welcome to Pure Nonfiction. I'm your host, Tom Powers, interviewing documentary filmmakers. Last week, our series launched with three episodes. Now we'll bring you a new episode every Thursday. We hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review. I should caution you, this episode contains explicit language. And how could it not? When our guests are Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato, the directors of HBO's new documentary, Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures, about the controversial photographer, Robert Maplethorpe. It's really hard to be that honest. It's hard to just be, you know, openly, like an openly ambitious dick. Fenton and Randy met in the 1980s as film students at New York University. Fenton was from England, Randy was from New Jersey. They formed the production company World of Wonder and moved to Los Angeles, producing a wide variety of documentaries and reality TV programs. They often look at pop culture outsiders crossing into the mainstream. They've collaborated on numerous projects with the drag queen RuPaul, including the TV series RuPaul's Drag Race. As a directing team, Fenton and Randy's films include The Eyes of Tammy Faye, about the televangelist Tammy Faye Baker, 101 Rent Boys, about Santa Monica Hustlers, Party Monster, about New York Club Kids, and Inside Deep Throat, about the infamous pornographic film. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Film Program. We talked extensively about their new film, Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures, but first I asked for their origin story. We met at a film school in the early 80s, sometime last century, in fact. And I have to say, I came to America and I must have met Randy within two days. And we just started working together. We worked on each other's films at film school. And then we dropped out of film school to pursue a glamorous career in pop music because we thought that would be surely the quickest way to raise the money by having hits, pop hits, to raise the money to make the films we wanted to make. What, you were going to be singers? Yes. Well, not so much singers, just a pop act. You know, And who who were you imagining yourself as? Uh, Well, comparisons were mainly to the Pet Shop Boys, uh, although we were significantly camper than the Pet Shop Boys, if such a thing is imaginable. Anyway, this was a brilliant plan. I mean, because, you know, it was hard to break into film. There there was emergent independent film, but not really a way of getting money. There was one flaw in our plan. We didn't have any hits. Mm, (laughs) We didn't get signed by a record. Well, we did, but it took a... The whole thing was... Um, took a, took a while, right? Now, hang on. Is there a recorded tape? Like, could I cut Absolutely. to a song right now? You could. Yes, you could. Because twenty five years later, we had a massive hit uh, thanks to Armin van Helden, who sampled our first release, New York City Beat, virtually in its entirety, and so we were handsomely repaid. Here's Fenton and Randy's band, the Fabulous Pop Tarts, with their song. New York City Beat. And 
and we the only reason we discovered we had a hit because he never came to us. No. But <laughs> I, I believe it was RuPaul who said, Oh my gosh, I just watched the latest Adam Sandler film and I heard your song, New York City Beat. In the Zohan. Trailer. Yes. Uh -huh, don't mess with Zohan. So we called our attorneys and um Kaching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you write some songs. Then how does that translate in starting to make films? Well, just a little sidebar. I know we're not here to talk about the fabulous Pop-Tarts, but Money, Success, Fame, Glamour is a song that we wrote the, that's in kind of the key song in Party Monster. So we have used, we've used our music from time to time. But, but I really think actually meeting each other at NYU, like so much of what determined our future happened during that time because... Very early on, while we were at NYU, we started cutting our editing class, remember? Because it was yeah. really boring. And we would go around the corner to the Pyramid Club, which was a, a downtown club that featured all the great drag queens um, of the 80s. And many of those 80s ladies are still around and still friends of ours. And that was kind of the beginning of our obsession with, with all things real. Um, mm. You know, because those drag queens were, they were and still are like, it was for us, it was like going to the Academy Awards for Happy Hour or something like that. These huge stars, larger than life. The combination of that and watching Manhattan Cable Public Access. By the way, Robin Bird was at the um, premiere last night of Maplethorpe. But um, we became obsessed with Manhattan Cable Public Access. And it was really, that was actually the first sort of. Um, uh, TV show we did because we we licensed clips and repackaged them for British British television. I imagine for young people, it's even kind of hard to imagine today because there is so much access via YouTube and, and other digital platforms, what it meant to be on television in the 1980s because it was otherwise so constricted. Absolutely. I mean, I think in the 80s, you have the barrier to access, whether it's Hollywood movies, independent movies, music, television was very, very high. I mean, even making documentaries today, you could just grab your iPhone and you're shooting in high def. But it was an expensive undertaking in those days. And as a result, very hard to get into. Now it's been completely, fantastically democratized. Yeah, it was a completely different world. And so the paradigm has shifted with technology beyond. It is hard. For, I, I can't imagine young people even understanding yeah, kind of like the choking conformity of 1980s media is... It's hard, it's hard for us, actually, even to remember it. You know, in making Maplethorpe, we've come across so many things where a change has happened and it's just become second nature. Like, for example, Maplethorpe taking nude, explicit selfies. You know, today, that's just commonplace, right? Everybody does it. You know, they're everywhere. But for him to actually take a picture and expect someone to look at that as we thought was an outrageous, scandalous idea. And it's so easy. It's, it's so hard once something has changed to put yourself back in the mindset of what it was like. So I want to get back into Maplethorpe in, in a minute. But let me ask you, what was your first breakthrough making films? Or when did you feel like, hey, we're doing this and people are paying attention? Well, people didn't really pay attention for a long time. People are paying um, attention. People, yes. Um, the, the very first thing we did was this series 
called Manhattan Cable. We literally called it Manhattan Cable, where we repackaged Manhattan Cable. And it actually was a huge hit in the UK. So people did pay attention to that. It was like a late night stoner show <laughs> um, that featured Robin Bird and Ed Wallowich and just all these amazing characters that were on Manhattan Cable. That was sort of the first time people paid attention. And then I think our... Our docu-breakthrough was probably The Eyes of Tammy Faye. The Eyes of Tammy Faye profiles Tammy Faye Baker. She and her husband, Jim Baker, were the hosts of the PTL Club, PTL for Praise the Lord, a wildly successful evangelical TV show in the 1970s and 80s. But in 1987, their career nosedived after Jim Baker was embroiled in a sex and financial scandal. Almost a decade later, Fenton and Randy reached out to Tammy Faye, who had fallen out of public view. The title, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, references her preference for big eyelashes and heavy mascara. Here's Tammy Faye at the start of the film. I think the eyes are so important. I believe the, uh, the eyes of the soul, I truly do. And I think you can look in someone's eyes and, and really tell what kind of a person and what their heart is. And so when my precious friends die, I always ask if I could please have their glasses. When my mom died, I got my mama's glasses and they're, they're very, very precious to me. I like to put them on sometime and think, you know, mama looked through these. Given that your background had been making films on the countercultural edge of uh, drag queens and uh, underground Manhattan, this struck people as an odd choice. Really? I mean, I think Tammy Faye is kind of a drag queen, really. And when we first met her, it was, in fact, in the presence of a transsexual televangelist called uh, Sister Paula. And we were so concerned that the two would collide on the set of a show we were making in our basement called TV Pizza, uh, that we kept them separate, but things were, they bumped into each other and they just hit it off. And that was when, oh, Tammy Faye is really, she's just like, just like a drag queen. And we saw her, you know, the absence of judgment um, and her very inclusive, very loving, really very warm approach. And we were just captivated by that, right? And we, and we felt that she'd been done a disservice. She'd been very harshly judged as a figure of ridicule. And the thing about her was that she was in on the joke. She was the author of the joke. She was in on it. And so all of the joke, I suppose, ultimately, was all the people are laughing at her were like one step behind Tammy, who was really a truly gifted communicator. And when that film came out, was there any collision between that presentation and her world of evangelical Christians? I think by the time that film came out, the evangelical Christians who were for her were for her. Like the polarization of that audience for her happened and it wasn't really going to change. I mean, either there were people for her or people against her from that community. I think what changed were were people who weren't in that community who were all pretty much thought of her as a big joke. And I think they were the ones 
who had a second thought and second considerations about who she was and what she stood for. And really, that's that's who the film was designed. Well, it wasn't designed for them, but it was for our people that we made that film rather than trying to convert, you know, evangelicals to take her back. Mm. Um, and by the way, I was just thinking about this. You know, prior to that, I think our big kind of breakthrough was the RuPaul supermodel music video and our stuff with RuPaul. And we actually used RuPaul to narrate the eyes of Tammy Faye. So we were sort of always integrating. Um, That's a connection that go, that now has lasted for a few decades yeah. with, with you and RuPaul. Uh-huh. And so when you uh, first encountered RuPaul, where, where was he in his career? We have a very clear image of seeing him on the street Wheat pasting posters of himself that said RuPaul is everything. And Rennie and I looked at each other and we're like, that is a star. And he was, right? He's always been a star, just sort of waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. With this kind of inc- incredible combination of, you know, all the catchings of drag. But then this wisdom and spirituality, and he was fully formed, like yeah. in terms of understanding celebrity, understanding the culture that we live in. I mean, he's a really sophisticated guy. And so we, our conversations, there are conversations we had 30 years ago that we are still having today. And in fact, he is someone who obviously, we talk a lot about when we when the time is right to do the big documentary about him because obviously mm. we've collected we have archive we have a basement full wow. of archives now early in your career besides being business partners you guys were also partner partners yeah and then and now you're not right right <laughs> <laughs> what was that transition like um what was the T word like for that? Um, it was that transition was was I kind not it was pretty smooth. It was, right? uh, it, it was it's, like, it with was... distance with the passing. Now it's been ten years or so. It seems like yeah, it was fine. It was easy. I mean, it was. We have always liked working together, and we've always recognized that we are such great partners in in that respect. We sort of cover up each other's weaknesses and bring different strengths and we argue and fight but it's i suppose it's an evolution i know the narrative of society is a marriage and divorce and breakups but in a way really if you leave that language aside i see our relationship as having evolved and it's fundamentally a long one it's like 33 years and at this point i can't imagine working without that second perspective of, you know, now hold on, you know, the one who's sort of, Randy, you'll often pull back from a crazy idea or just wise counsel or just perspective. You know, it's it's so great, whether you're shooting on location or in an edit room, to have the benefit of two pairs of, of eyes because you don't see everything. And, and weirdly, just having finished the Maplethorpe film, everything ends up being through that lens or filter. I think Maplethorpe, even though he's this very singular artist, he was such a collaborator because I suspect he too felt he needed another set of eyes to do what he did, even though, of course, 
ultimately he's the artist who gets the credit. But he was, don't you think, he was very much a, a collaborator, a serial collaborator. And I do think, I think our collaboration and, and having also at some point been a sort of genuine, intimate relationship that transitioned into more of a work relationship, it was always a work relationship from day one. Literally, like within the first week we met one another, we were working on each other's films. We only worked on each other's films at NYU. And we also had a relationship back then. And so... You know, relationships change, people change, but but our work relationship is probably better than it's ever been. And we might with Maple with the Maplethorpe film, we probably fought more than we ever fought in the edit room, which means the film is the best hmm. of all of our films because it is you know, oh, I don't know if we should put that still here. It takes me out of that moment. Uh, 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 and we fight back and forth. Then we leave, then we come back, and someone has won. And um, and that happens a lot, which is not very fair to our amazing editors. We did come up with a rule, which, which has spared them, because we now do not sit in the edit room together at the same time. For their sakes. You know, we take it out of the edit room. Otherwise, they'd be charging you a different per hour fee, right? <laughs> now, when I look at your IMDb page, there are films about drag queens and rent boys and pornographers and uh, and, and other things too. But there, there's consistently a streak of of the underground. And I wonder if that was something that you sought out, like that you recognized as a kind of specialty of yours, or if it just happened accidentally. Well, I think, you know, there's a misapprehension that the quirky and the outsider is a, is itself a marginal eccentric pursuit. But I think the revolution we've seen in the culture, say, since the end of Second World War, basically, has been all about bringing the outsider in. And in fact, the sort of the engine of popular culture is to ever crave new things, new experiences. And so inevitably, what is outside becomes what is inside. I also think, though, that our, our, our sort of body of work represents what we are passionate about and what we identify with. I think we, we are outsiders. I think Fenton and I have always considered ourselves outsiders. We've considered ourselves more comfortable you know, at a drag queen bar at happy hour than we, than we are at some, you know, New York Times forum. Those are our people. That's our tribe. And so, and some of them are hustlers and some of them are pornographers. And, but all of them have a kind of connection and have a humanity that we relate to. And so I don't think, I don't think we've kind of, purposely sought out people. It's just those are the people in the stories that excite us the most. Now, when I was making films 10 years ago, I produced these two documentaries. One is called Breasts. One is called Private Dicks, interviews with women about their breasts, interviews with guys about their penises. And when I had those in my resume, I'd always feel a slight hesitation if I had to call up like a grade school to ask them to go film shooting there or call up a politician to go do an interview. And I wonder if that underground streak on, on your resume like ever gets in the way. It does. I think it does. <laughs> yes. And I think we have to massage it with some people or, or or just like, oh, my God, 
I hope they don't go on IMDb or yeah. or you know we also have a blog and um, and uh, sometimes we'll tell the folks who help us with our blog you know hey for the next couple of weeks can you keep it a little softer because we're negotiating access to a school right no a five star <laughs> general is not going to necessarily enjoy the wow report maybe he would i mean it's funny that you i absolutely understand your apprehension about owning certain films but but the the irony is that in america today like there's there isn't even mandated sex education so the ignorance in the adult population just about fundamental body parts it's not just about not about sex sexuality sexual behavior just even what bit is where and what does what is shocking and it's yeah. it's amazing to me that we don't talk about sex that we don't embrace sexuality as a valid topic of discussion after all we have a culture saturated with pornography after all sex is used to sell every kind of product and yet we refuse to talk about it and if you talk about it that is something to be ashamed of or something to be and i think it's part of this highbrow lowbrow divide that really does nobody any good in fact i think it does a lot of harm so we're sort of our mission i suppose you know we're not necessarily traditional activists or political have a political agenda but i think we should be talking about these things we'll be back with more from fenton bailey and randy barbato in a minute but first a word from our sponsor Pure Nonfiction is brought to you by SundanceNow.club. Watch documentary films selected by head curator Tom Powers and guest curators such as Dan Savage, Lori Anderson, and Ira Glass. Now on Doc Club, you can watch the documentary Kink that goes behind the scenes of a sexually explicit SM website. Hey, hey, can you do that with just a little more attitude, that line? Okay, let me try. Now on Doc Club, you can watch the documentary Kink that goes behind the scenes of a sexually explicit SM website. Okay, that's enough attitude. The rest. Kink is directed by Christina Voros and produced by James Franco. It made its debut at the Sundance Film Festival. Kink is just one of hundreds of documentaries you can start watching now on SundanceNow.club. Hey, now, have you seen Kink? No. Well, download the Doc Club app or go to docclub.com to sign up for a free trial. Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato's new film, Maplethorpe, Look at the Pictures, they profile the New York photographer Robert Maplethorpe, whose career varied between celebrity portraits, classic pictures of flowers, and graphic images of gay S&M sex. Maplethorpe died from complications of AIDS in 1989, and his photography was attacked in Congress by Jesse Helms. But I want senators to come over here, if they have any doubt, and look at the pictures. Fenton and Randy interviewed many of Maplethorpe's close friends and uncovered a treasure trove of archival material. Here's a clip of Maplethorpe answering the question, does he have a dirty mind? Well, I don't know what I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, I think everybody is one way in one way or another involved in sexuality. So uh, if you believe that sex is dirty, everybody has a dirty mind, I suppose. 
but I never consider sex being dirty. I asked Fenton and Randy what it was like getting everyone on board to make this film. The way the film came to be was a conversation with Sheila Nevins at HBO. And Sheila brought up his name. And Fenton and I were like, oh, my God, you know, this could be really great. And so we left um, that meeting and started kind of doing research. And it was shortly thereafter that we discovered that Lachman and Getty were doing this huge joint retrospective. So this was like this gift mm. that just landed on our lap. Um, you know, it took a few minutes to get access and to and to have them feel comfortable um, letting us shoot. And of course, we had to get um, access to the Maplethorpe Foundation and you know, they're, they do a great job controlling his estate. And, you know, obviously when you're making a film like this, you want to get that kind of access, but you also want complete editorial control. Yeah. So getting all these big institutions on board, you know... Without to, letting them take it over or yes, co-opt and, it. And um, that took a few minutes and that took yeah. some tap dancing and... Um, but they all became great, trustful partners. And so all of that's really when the train started, left the tracks. And, um, you know, we interviewed 50 people for the film. We probably pre-interviewed close to 100 because, you know, you spend all this time on the phone talking to people. But it was true that so many people were eager to talk about him because whether they were journalists or friends, um, or other artists or gallerists or curators, his ambition was as brutally direct and honest as his artwork. And he made it clear to people that he wanted his life and his story to be told. So that's like a dream subject. You know, it would have been great if he, he was still alive, but, um, but the tapes that we found, you know, helped. Can you talk a little bit more about those tapes or maybe just describe one of them and your uncovery of them and, and what it revealed? I think that a good example is a tape that we got from Carolyn Squires, um. who is was a journalist at the time. And she was, an, you know, an art, an art critic. And she had done she'd interviewed him for the Fire Island Tides. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Um, and it was early. It was very early in his career. And she had a relationship with him that lasted for a while, writing about him. But it's a great piece of tape because you hear he's articulate about what he's doing. And it was early on when he was first showing some of the more explicit work. And he wasn't even affiliated with a gallery at the time, I don't think. Here's a clip of Robert Maplethorpe being interviewed by Carol Squires. When one sees something you've never seen before, it's, it's rather important. I mean, still, I can show those to people, and they will have never seen that image before. So it opens something up. And I think that's what art is about, is opening something up. The, the two things that struck me hearing that tape, one was he was far more articulate than people had claimed he was. People would say, well, you know, he didn't really talk about it. He had a very clear notion of what he was doing and why he was doing it. Secondly, he had a pretty wicked sense of humor. Mm. And, and then also he was kind of soft-spoken. You know, even though he was very serious about his ambition and open about his ambition, 
is also very funny. And I think sometimes that's hard for people. These two ideas seem potentially at odds. How can you be a serious artist, but at the same time, apparently, creating work that is that does have an element of humor in it. Like, for example, Man in Polyester Suit. It's a funny picture. Describe what that picture is. Oh, yes, of course. Man in Polyester Suit is a torso, a dressed torso in a fancy suit with this huge black cock sticking out. So you don't Not see... that big. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and... Uh, and then, you know, or self-portrait with whip, which I think is a, a deliciously understated title because... Describe what that picture is. Oh. Maplethorpe squatting in front of the camera with his back to the camera, but looking over his shoulder with, crucially, the handle of a whip stuck up his butt. So, yeah, these, these pictures, they're not visual puns, but they do have humor in them. Or, you know, Maplethorpe with the devil's horns on, which are... You know, cheap pair of novelty horns from a party costume store, but it's it's a great image. It's a satanic image, but also a tongue-in-cheek image at the same time. One of the extraordinary characters in your film is Robert Maplethorpe's younger brother Edward. Can you describe who he is, what his role is in Maplethorpe's life? Um, Edward Maplethorpe is a Robert's younger brother, and he actually went to school to study photography. And, you know, the, the Maplethorpes, their father was a, did photography as a hobby, actually had a dark room in their basement. So it sort of, it was in the, in the, the Maplethorpe blood. Um, but he, when he was in college, he went and visited his older brother. He was doing a, uh, an essay on his brother called Maplethorpe on Maplethorpe. And, you know, prior to that, you know, there's there's a pretty significant difference in age. So it wasn't like they were hanging out at the house mm -hmm. together. You know, uh, Robert left and Edward, you know, was at home alone until he went to college. But anyway, he went to visit his brother. And shortly thereafter, he ended up working as Robert's assistant in the studio and actually had major co contribution to Robert's art. Like... You know, because Edward actually studied photography. Robert never studied photography. Edward Edward understood lighting, brought a lot of uh, technological know-how, and for a while really was the go-to guy at the studio. Edward himself is also an amazing photographer. And so, you know, our film kind of follows this relationship, which, which became quite challenging because eventually... You know, Edward wanted to go out on his own and pursue his own, uh, you know, career as a photographer. And it's a little difficult for him to get, you know, beyond the shadow of his brother, Robert. And Robert wasn't that generous in terms of kind of helping or supporting his brother's career. To say the least. To say the least. It's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, it isn't now, but I, I don't think because I do think... You know, Edward is a recognized and successful photographer in his own right. He'll never escape. the. I mean, the name is Maplethorpe, although his brother did ask him to change his name at some point in his career, which was a kind of futile attempt to separate the two. Um, and, and again, just kind of an awful thing. So when you approached uh, Edward Maplethorpe to be in this film, what was that conversation? Well, his answer was no. <laughs> so 
I mean, I think for many, for probably reasons that now are self-evident, that he just didn't necessarily want to talk about it. He'd spent his life trying to get out from under that shadow. So here we were saying, let's talk about that. (laughs) And Edward said, well, but then, you know, he realized the film was going to be made with or without him. And I'm just so glad we were able to help him change his mind because he brings... He dimensionalizes Robert and brings this humanity. And I think you can also see that you see this this notion of, of Mablethorpe as a collaborator. You know, he was so fascinated with duality, whether it was light and dark, good and evil, life and death, but also the way he worked. It was with other people. And working with his brother was this, you know, an extension of this duality, whether he was having a show uptown and a show downtown, separating the pictures. It's its just funny the way this duality thing plays out. So in many ways to us, you know, Edward does have this, uh, he, he brings so much humanity and, and I think helps people understand. He's the heart of our film. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. I think when you're making a film about someone who isn't alive, you have you're presented with a whole host of challenges. How do you how do you engage the audience and how do you bring that person to life? And we did that obviously with the audio tapes of Robert, but it was also with and we had a sense that we were going to be able to do that with a colorful cast of characters. But really, when it came to the heart of this film, it's Edward Maplethorpe. And he he brought heart to it. And he also, I think, helps make the whole story and the work more accessible. He is a very relatable guy. A lot of uh, audiences, uh, and I showed this film at the Miami Film Festival where, where you guys were a couple weeks ago. And one of the questions that came from the audiences Robert Maplethorpe can be a hard person to like. He was fiercely ambitious. He had this streak of sometimes cruel behavior, like what we've described uh, towards his younger brother. How was it for you to grapple with this personality that can be difficult? I think we were ambivalent. Uh, I think several times we went to each other and was like, oh, do, we, do we really want to be doing this? Do you know? But then... The revelation, and this is what's so exciting about making a documentary, because it really is a journey of discovery. The revelation was that he was so honest about what he was doing, even if it was at his own expense, even if it meant people wouldn't like him. And I think he was like a beacon of documentary art. You know, he it wasn't just that he took these amazing pictures. It was also that he wanted... He wanted the pictures and his story to be told because the ultimate work of art was Robert's life. And he said that, you know, the life he is leading is more important than the pictures he was taking. And you, you put the pictures with what people write about him and what he says, and you get this sort of complete work of art. And what is that? It's an incredibly unsparing, revelatory, honest look. And Robert's honesty, whether you like him or dislike him, kind of is not relevant. His honesty is so admirable. That's when, that was the turning point for for us, right? I mean, I, th- I think unlike any other subject that we've ever made a documentary about, we, we usually always go into making a film because we're inspired by someone, connect to them, like them a lot. Right. We have a clear idea, or we think we have a clear idea of who they are. 
But this film was unlike any other film in that respect. I mean, we truly, we were really attracted to his work and what he represented. But, you know, for the first, almost the first year of making this film, we're like, oh, my God, I don't know if I like him. (laughs) It's like, and it was, it actually was like, it was a crisis for us. Like, it it really was. Don't you remember? Like, we were like, why are we doing this? Like it, 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 we were really confused about it. And so it was a journey unlike any other for any other of our films, I think, because to come out at, at the end and, and, and really feel so comfortable and confident in liking and admiring his authenticity and his, because actually when you think, it's really hard to be that honest. It's hard to just be, you know, openly, uh, like an openly ambitious dick in a way. I mean, you well, know. Madonna. Um, but again, I think she's to be admired for that same characteristic of saying, you know, I'm here. To, I remember Madonna interview in the face in 1980 oh, something. We she's like, I'm London, going to be, right? yes, the most famous singer in the world. And I, I was like, Randy, oh, who does she think she is? She's like slagged off Cher. Yeah. Right? And you know what? Bitch was right. <laughs> she is, and it's at the, at some point it transcends like or dislike, nice or not nice. You know, I I, I think it indicates re- true courage and heroism to put yourself out there and not not care what people think. I suppose it's this idea, in a way, of of the closet. Not whether you're gay or straight. The closet is an idea in which you hide yourself. You hide who you are. And if, you know, if Oprah has taught us anything, it's that idea of, you know, live your best life. You'll be your most authentic self. And someone like Maplethorpe and, and also Madonna, I mean, they that's what they do without apology. And I think I and really you, admire that. And you need people like that, especially if they have something else with it. If they have that kind of brazen ambition, but they also, like with Maplethorpe, you know, that explicit work was and still is really important because, you know, art is about opening something up in yourself. Art is about sort of challenging yourself to sort of go deeper, go beyond where you're at. And and so you need people who will sort of put stuff out there that kind of shakes it up. And, um, and you know, and also, you know, personally, he was gay and it was in and it was gay. A lot of it was gay art, which I also think was important, at least for us. Like we kind of connected to that because remember at the time people it was, you know, people were still fully in the closet. Yeah. I mean, um, the closet as big as the Ritz. Yeah. I think there are some people in the gay community that don't necessarily consider him a pioneer mm-hmm. because especially where the gay community is now. Thank God. I mean, it's like. You know, people are out, people are married, people have kids. We have kids. It's like, it's a completely different world. But still, you have to recognize pioneers like Robert Maplethorpe. It's just like you have to recognize the drag queens. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's the people on the fringe. They're the ones who move the culture forward. And so... By refusing to be invisible. Yes. And so you, you, you have to kind of step aside from your judgment of of what, how they led their lives or what, you know, if you don't agree with this or that or this picture is disgusting or whatever, that's not what it's about. It's about something so much bigger. 
So my last question, you mentioned that you both have kids now. You're both raising kids, uh, young kids. Gay men are trading their poppers for pampers. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, we're actually doing poppers now. Too <laughs> um, And, I, you know, women always, women filmmakers always get this question, like, how do you balance your home life and, uh, and your career life? And so I want to put that out to you. How do you balance parenting and, and filmmaking? Well, you know, the, the, the great thing about children, I mean... <sighs> Children give you so much. The, the sort of you know the idea that that it takes a lot out of you is, I suppose, it is true. But they give you so much, and they give you so many ideas, and so it's it's less like a sacrifice, and it's less that equation of having it all. And it's more like it's part of managing your responsibilities. But it really adds so much to have that perspective. Certainly, I feel getting. Well, not getting any younger, it's great to have this young perspective and you, you sort of get that refreshing directness and, and stuff. So it is, it's a balancing act. What a pathetic uh, answer. Uh, yeah, I don't, I do not, I could not, I don't know how to answer that question because I think I'm, I'm not doing a very good job of it. I am like completely, I feel uncomfortable being here right now and not being at home. Like. I have not yet mastered the skill of balancing it. And um, this is the longest, like promoting this this film has been like the longest, because making the film, we were able to carve it up. Like, but this has been very difficult to be away from, from the kids. The one great thing is, I do think that they help me be much more focused and efficient with my time because I want to spend spend more time with them. So, but I'm always tired. Hang on closing music. Before wrapping up, I had one more question. In March, I'd hosted Fenton and Randy at the Miami International Film Festival, where I work as the documentary programmer. Over dinner, they privately told me about their idea for a new documentary, so I asked them on the record what they're working on next. Well, I tell you, it's not Trump. You know, <laughs> it's not. It just it, isn't. It was so, <laughs> you know, okay. So here's the thing. We were going to do this film on Trump, and then we talked to you about it, and we, it, it, we had been obsessed with it. We started, we did the whole game plan, and then you were like, well, you need to let everybody know. And so the next day, we actually stole your soundbite, right? Yeah. I took your soundbite. You know, we just made a film about dicks. So it was time to make one about an asshole, which Tom <laughs> gave us that, sound, that quote. And we ran with it the next day. And it could have turned into this big media thing. But I think we both felt like... We couldn't live with ourselves. And then we decided in the past week and a half that we just can't can't do it. Life is too short. So documentary filmmakers out there, it, it's yours to grab. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that. Uh. <laughs> I want to thank Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato for joining me. You can watch Maplethorpe Look at the Pictures on HBO. In our next episode, we talk to the director, Liz Garbus. She was nominated twice for the Oscar for The Farm, Angola, USA, 
in this past year for What Happened Miss Simone. Her latest film is Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. For me, I who and I've been around some different places in my life. I've spent time in prisons. I've spent time as you know, watching a man lose his life on you know in death row. I've learned a lot from those people. I and I learned a lot from Gloria Vanderbilt. I learned a lot about how you survive the worst thing that you one of the worst things that you can imagine. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., coordinating producer Rachel Fishman Federson, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review, even a short one. In the upcoming week, you can come out and see us record live episodes at the Montclair Film Festival for free. You can learn more about those live events, read our show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Uptown, downtown, turn the beat around town. Of the New York City beat. <laughs> All right, well, we tried. Yeah, we tried.